This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Rob Heaton, and I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my own PhD. But uh, today we'll be breaking that mold ever so slightly to discuss a book that may represent a paradigm shift in studies of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Uh, Hopefully I'm not hyperbolizing when I say this, uh, given that my guest's work digs into the very heart of Judaism as an institution, that is, when it came to be practiced far and wide by Judeans. Uh, But these things take time, and we'll have to see how exactly Hebrew Bible and Old Testament scholars respond to his work. So to introduce my guest, Yonatan Adler, holds a PhD in archaeology from Bar-Ilan University in Israel, uh, completed in 2011, and is associate professor in archaeology at Ariel University, where he also heads the Institute of Archaeology. Adler specializes in the origins of Judaism as a system of, of ritual practices and in the evolution of these practices over the long term. Uh, previously, his research focused on ritual purity observance evidenced in archaeological remains of chalk vessels and immersion pools. He has directed excavations at several sites throughout Israel, uh, and from 2019 to 2020, that uh, dreaded COVID period, he held the appointment of the Horace W. Goldsmith Visiting Associate Professor in Judaic Studies at Yale University. On top of all this, uh, Yonatan is joining us today to discuss the ramifications of his recent book, The Origins of Judaism, an Archaeological Historical Reappraisal with Yale University Press, and it was published uh, last year, last uh, November, I believe, or October, perhaps. Uh, Yonatan, it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the New Books Network. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, so it was wonderful to read this book, and uh, you frame the book, even though you know you call it an archaeological uh, historical reappraisal in terms of biblical scholarship going back to the 19th century, which, uh, as you say, was already looking at that time for indications that Judaism was a post-exilic phenomenon after the exile to Babylon. Um, it's an ambitious project, and it I think seeks to dethrone the way uh, the uh, ways of thinking common to Hebrew Bible and Old Testament studies. And perhaps worth mentioning that Hebrew Bible continues even today to be taught in terms of documentary hypotheses uh, that look for layers of intellectual history that become piled on top of one another. Um, does my reading between the lines uh, find that the, the ambitions that I I read when I'm when I ha- when I had the book in hand, do, do these ambitions match your own? Are you trying to affect the very heart of how we uh, think about the institution of Judaism? Um, I would say yes and no. Uh, yes, uh, I, I I do agree that that there there, there is something ambitious here uh, with what I what I've done here in the book, um, but. No, not in terms of um, the intellectual history of biblical writings. So, so what I'm looking at in the book is what, I'd make the distinction in the book between social history and intellectual history. And you mentioned the documentary hypothesis, um, and we can speak about the other hypotheses that have arisen 
uh, in the late 20th century, uh, you know, in, in terms of how, how the Pentateuch um, was put together, um, I am not coming to question any of that, right? I'm not coming to question uh, how the Pentateuch or other, you know, biblical books came, came to be. That's not the question uh, that I'm asking. Um, the, and I'm not looking at the question of how Pentateuchal law came to be. Right? These are questions which I regard as questions of intellectual legal history, how these, these, these rules came to be, how they came to be written down, um, how they came to be compiled and edited over time. These are questions which I don't touch upon at all in the book. And I make it very clear that this is not my interest. Uh, because I regard these as intellectual history. And what I mean by that is that the people who were working on all of this were intellectuals, right? These are people who, um, by definition, are literate, right? They've, they've put these, these rules into writing and they've written about them. Uh, and as such, as, as uh, literate people, they are... You know, we know that, that in ancient society, there were very few people that were actually literate. Certainly, there were very few people who would have been able to uh, put together literary documents on the level of the biblical documents that we have. So by definition, these are people that are, you know, these are minorities. Now, I'm very careful not to call them elites, because elite implies that they have some kind of uh, influence on the surrounding society. And while that may be the case, we cannot assume that that was the case. Now we'll get to what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the masses. I'm interested in the society at large and what I call social history. I'm interested in what the ordinary people were doing, the farmers, the craftsmen, the homemakers, the ordinary people, what were they doing and when were they doing that? That's the question that, 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 that interests me. And where you speak about a paradigm change, uh, you know, it, I, my hope is that we can start to think more seriously about these kinds of questions, um, which I, I think in the past have either been ignored or worse conflated with the intellectual history. In other words, there was this, there, there's often a confusion where we assume that if something is written down, it reflects what people were doing, or it automatically means that people are going to be, uh, you know, putting into practice the laws that are written down, for example. And, and this is something which, which I, hope, uh, I hope to change. So, so again, to, 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 to frame what we're going to be talking about today, what, what, what the book is about, the question which interests me is very, very clear question. From which point in time did ancient Judeans begin to keep the laws of the Torah? From which point in time did ordinary Judeans, the, the, the masses, society at large, come to know about the laws of the Torah and put it into practice in their daily lives? That's, that, that's the question that I'm focusing on. Wonderful. I mean, it's right there in the first chapter, and I took an interest in this distinction of social history from intellectual history. I suppose uh, part of what's in my question is uh, I couldn't help but wonder: uh, should we be should we think about replacing the idea of intellectual history with uh, greater attention to social history? And I'll let you respond to that if you will, if you want to. 
Sure. I'm not arguing that we should replace our interest in intellectual history with an interest in social history. My, My point is that these are two separate things. Both of them are interesting. I'm not saying that we should we should uh, you know throw out our interest in in intellectual history. Absolutely not. No, this is this is certainly an interesting thing, but it's also interesting. And to my mind, it's you know how, how do we how do we define interesting? But for me, right, social history is in, in, extraordinarily interesting, and I I have to share. I'm, I'm surprised that it isn't this interesting to most people. One would think that what the masses are doing is just as important, if not more important, than what a small minority of intellectuals are are thinking about. You know, especially if if, if what they're thinking about doesn't have any effect on on the society at large. So, I, I my point is, what the masses are doing, what the society at large is actually doing, is important, and it's certainly something that we should be thinking about, even if we're interested in intellectual history. As such, we still need to be thinking about the society at large within which it is embedded and how this intellectual history is or is not affecting the society at large. So, so, so it's a question which I think is incredibly important. I think it's been, as I said, either neglected or, or worse, uh, confused with, with social history. These are two separate things, which, which both of them, to my mind, need to be studied. Well, when we talk about social history, you are looking for when the Judean people adopt recognizable Jewish or Judean practices on a wide scale, these being things like an aversion to uh, figural artwork or graven images, as they're sometimes called, um, uh, distinct dietary restrictions, synagogue worship, circumcision, the Sabbath as a day of rest, the different festivals, and so on. Have other scholars before you pursued this same interest in social history, or do you feel like you are kind of doing your doing something a novel in the history of scholarship? Um, so, in in a way, so, okay. So I, I I can point out a few scholars who have, and I, I do this in the book, um, who have looked at what people are actually doing. Um, so uh, E. P. Sanders, for example, does this for sure when he's looking at. Um, you know, at first century practices, and he's uh, he speaks about common Judaism. So this notion of what you know the 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 ordinary people are doing, uh, what's common amongst Judeans throughout the Roman Empire, um, he's doing exactly that, and he's looking at, and we'll we'll soon speak about the kind of evidence we can look at to try to understand what the common people are doing. He looks at mostly texts, but he also brings in. Archaeology, which is extraordinarily important uh, when we're looking at actual practices, what people are actually doing. So you know, I, I would call out um, Sanders as a as an example of someone who, who's done this. Um, what I've done beyond Sanders is that I'm looking backwards in time. So Sanders doesn't go backwards in time to see when does this begin. It's actually interesting that he never asks the question, when does his common Judaism first emerge? Um, at least I haven't found that in his writings. Layers uh, of the onion that he didn't want to peel back because he knew that it would uh, take too much time, perhaps? I, I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps his interest was specifically in the first century. Um, but in any event, as far as I can tell, he, he, he hadn't done that. Um, and that's that's where I'm picking up, uh, I, I guess one could say, what, where he left off in terms of that. Uh, I'm going backwards in time to see how far back this goes. Uh, and we'll talk shortly about the method of the book. 
but you know, you know, for sure, I would I would call out Sanders as as an example of that. Um, Reinhard Kratz uh, from Göttingen uh, does he, again. He doesn't spend a lot of time looking at this, but he does ask this question of you know what when the ordinary people are actually um, you know know about the, the 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 biblical tradition he speaks about, um, and he, he makes this very clear distinction between you know. Ha- a, a biblical tradition being out there, but not necessarily known by the masses and the masses actually knowing about it. So that's, you know, that's, that work um, has been very important uh, in terms of my, my own work. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not breaking in new ground entirely here. Um, but, but, but it's a question which I think uh, hasn't been looked at carefully enough in the past. Very well. Let's uh, not bury the lead any further. Let's get into the basic thesis of your book. Um, And I quote from page 19, you say that uh, we have no compelling evidence dating to any time prior to the middle of the second century BCE, which suggests that the Judean masses knew of the Torah and were observing its laws in in practice. Uh, And so you locate Judaism as we know it only emerging or originating around or perhaps prior to this time. And you can get into that distinction if you'd like. Um, But I'm interested also in if you can give a few examples of the evidence that you use for the emergence of Judaism in this period around the Maccabean Revolt and the Hasmonean era. Uh, please also discuss the method you pursue and maybe also speak about why evidence for Judaism in earlier periods is so sparse or indeterminative for pushing the history back into immediate post-exilic times, as is commonly thought. Okay, good. So let's begin with the method. Sure. That's uh, that's that, that, that's important here. And this, I think, is, is quite... Um, Quite new. Uh, I, I haven't found this um, in other in other scholarship. It, so so let's let, let me explain. It's quite simple. I take a period of time when I can show that there is this thing which I'm calling Judaism. Perhaps before we be, talk about the method, let's let's talk about definitions here. So when I speak about Judaism, what I'm looking for when I speak about the origins of of, of Judaism. When I speak of Judaism, I am speaking about the the um, Judean way of life governed by Torah law. Now, let me define what I mean by Torah law. So, I in the book I distinguish between the Pentateuch, which is easy enough to define, um, you know, the first five books of the Bible, and Torah. When I speak of Torah, what I mean is an entire system of law based on the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is the, is the written basis for a, a living, more dynamic system of law, which for our purposes we'll, we'll call the Torah. Uh, so you'll have, you know, interpretations of the Pentateuch and oral um, traditions, which generally are based on, on the Pentateuch. Um, but, but, but the Torah, when I use the term Torah, I'm referring to this more dynamic kind of, 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 of law. Um, so again, the Judaism that whose origins I am searching for, I understand, or the, 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 the way I use the term is the Judean way of life governed by Torah law. And the question is, when does this begin? So again, getting back to the method, we take a period of time when we can show that this Judaism exists, that the Judeans at large, the ordinary common people know about the laws of the Torah and are keeping the laws of the Torah 
on a general basis. Okay. And what I show in chapter after chapter is that the first century of the common era is a period of time when we can show very, very easily that people know about the laws and are, excuse me, and are keeping these laws. Um, then what I do is I go backwards in time before the first century of the common era to see, do we still have evidence that people know about the laws and are keeping them? So I go backwards to the first century BCE, to the second century BCE, to the third century BCE, so on and so forth, as far back as I can go. And I look to see where does the trail of evidence end? And where the trail of evidence ends, we're able to draw a line and to say, this is, and now I'm going to use a, a Latin term, terminus antequem. This is a term which is used often in, in archaeological parlance to refer to a period of time or a line in time before which something must have happened. So the, the terminus antequem is where our trail of evidence ends, where we no longer see evidence that the masses know about and are keeping the laws of the Torah. Before Judaism must have begun then or earlier, right? Because after that, we already have evidence that people are keeping the law. So Judaism must have begun then or earlier. And as you said, what I show throughout the book is that the middle of the second century before the common era is our terminus antiquem. The earliest evidence we have when we look at practice after practice, a prohibition after prohibition, the earliest evidence that we have goes back to the middle of the second century before the common era and no earlier, which means that Judaism must have emerged either then in the middle of the second century before the common era or earlier. That's the, that's the meaning of, of a terminus antiquem. Um, so that's, that, that's basically the, 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 the thrust of the entire book until we get to the last chapter. In the last chapter, I look at the question of, okay, what's going on before our terminus antiquem? What's going on before the middle of the second century, before the common era? What can we say? What kind of, of Sitzenleben uh, can we, can we um, imagine for the emergence of, of Judaism? Um, because since we're talking about a terminus antiquem, theoretically, it could have happened hundreds of years before. We just don't have evidence for hundreds of years. That's possible. Um, so, I, so that's what I do in the last chapter, and we'll, we'll get to that presumably towards the end of our, <clears throat> our discussion. Um, I look at the various periods of time when we can imagine Judaism having uh, had emerged. One thing which uh, perhaps um, I, should, I should mention now is that there's an axiomatic uh, understanding amongst scholars that Judaism emerges, that Judaism emerged during the Persian period. Um, this is something which, you know, if, if you stop a Hebrew Bible scholar on the street and you, you're laughing, I see, <laughs> uh, but in Jerusalem, you can actually stop a Hebrew Bible scholar on the street. It's not so uncommon to, to come across these, 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 these folks. Um, so if you stop a Hebrew Bible scholar on the street and you ask, when did Judaism first emerge? When did the people start keeping the laws of the Torah? Chances are they will tell you, you tell me. <laughs> After the return from Babylon. After the uh, return is, from Babylon. Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah Ezra you know, instituted Nehemiah. The, uh, the long and arduous process of rebuilding the temple and, uh, um, and reading every uh, year the Torah aloud to the people. 
Exactly. So that's that's that would put us somewhere around uh, probably the middle of the fifth century before the Common Era. Uh, Julius Wellhausen uh, uh, g- gives an exact date for when this happened. So uh, it's the first of the seventh month, uh, I believe, it's the year four 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 BCE, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and this is, of course, based on Nehemiah eight, where we have the story of Ezra uh, coming back from uh, Babylon. Uh, bringing with him a, a Torah Moshe, a Mosaic Torah, reading this before the people in uh, in Jerusalem, in the Water Gate, standing on a wooden platform. There's we have this whole whole uh, description in in Nehemiah eight, and Wellhausen accepts this story as historical, and for him, the the people for the first time hear the the Torah being read, they put it into practice, and voila, we have Judaism. Um, and I, I would say uh, biblical scholars uh, since since his time have continued to, to toe this line. So this is the assumption that, that Judaism begins in the 5th century before the Common Era during the Persian period uh, under the aegis of, of uh, Ezra. The problem with this is there's a couple of problems. Number one, um, as historians, we cannot simply take a, a narrative, a story that we find in an ancient text and, uh, you know, say, well, okay, that's what happened, right? That, that, that's not what historians do. We don't, we don't do that. Um, a story that was written in antiquity is, inc- is incredibly important to understand what the writer of the story wanted to convey. So it's historical in that way. But the story itself, we don't Except as 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 history, that's that, that isn't history. Um, so that's that's one problem. Another problem is that the story itself never claims that the Judeans continued to keep the rules of the Torah from then on. From then on, to the contrary, a few chapters later, uh, we find that uh, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem and he finds the people not keeping the laws of the Torah. They're not keeping uh, the Sabbath. They are intermarrying with with the local foreign women. So the, the 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 story itself, even if we were to naively follow the story as it's told, the story itself doesn't ne- never makes the claim that that Judeans continue to keep the laws of the Torah from then onward. So so the the method that I'm taking here is meant to actually look for evidence instead of uh, simply. Uh, fo- instead of simply naively following um, uh, the story as Wellhausen understood it uh, in Nehemiah 8, what I'm attempting to do here is to actually look for data, to see what data do we have that shows people are actually keeping the laws or not keeping the laws. Tremendous. And um, I let you go on for a long monologue there speaking about it because it's such a breath of fresh air. Um, and I say that as a, as a biblical scholar myself, uh, something that I've, I, I absolutely wanted to read. Um, and we, while we won't go through every single one of those chapters, uh, I'm wondering if you might pull from one of the chapters and talk about the varieties of evidence that you encounter, um, uh, whether it be from you know the synagogue or dietary restrictions. And I should also say that we, uh, if there are any biblical scholars listening, we will uh, um, intuitively understand your Latin because we use the same uh, similar terms when discussing the limits uh, during which a book might have been 
uh, written, you know, terminus a quo, terminus post quim. But anyway, uh, back to the question of evidence. So if you want to pick maybe your favorite sure. example from the body of the book. Sure. Okay. So let's, let's go with the, the first chapter uh, where I discuss figural art. That's, that's a fun one. So we have in, of course, the second commandment, uh, not to make graven images. And when we look at the first century of the common era, we look, we, if, when we look at Jewish art from this period of time, Judean art, we find that Judeans consistently avoided depicting humans or animals in their artwork. Um, so, you know, when we look at mosaic floors uh, in, for example, in Jerusalem or in Herodian palaces uh, from, from the first century of the common era, um, well, Herodian palaces would be at the, the end of the first century before the common era, but all right, we don't find any kind of figural art in mosaic floors, funerary art, on ossuaries, um, on coins. We never, almost without exception, we don't find uh, any, any kind of figural art. And when we look at texts as well, Josephus stands out particularly. Um, you know, we have plenty of stories uh, where Josephus tells us the Judeans uh, took umbrage at the Romans for bringing in uh, bringing in figural art into the uh, into Jerusalem. Um, the enzymes uh, we find, um, and, and Josephus explains to us that the reason why Judeans avoided figural art was because of uh, because it was regarded as forbidden according to according to the the, the, the law. Um, when we go backwards in time, we continue to find this avoidance of figural art in Judean art in the first century of the common era, in the, before the common era, the second century before the common era. This particularly stands out with the coins. So on coinage, we always expect to find uh, the image of the ruler, right? So if we're talking about a monarchy, we expect to find the king and or queen on the coin or the emperor, right? Uh, this is almost universal uh, in antiquity oh. until today, right? If you go to a, a monarchy, uh, whether Great Britain or the Scandinavian countries, um, where you have a king or a queen, you will find the king or the queen on the coins, right? That is, that, that is what's done. Um, when we look at Judean coins, we do not find the ruler. So what we find instead is some kind of uh, replacement to the image of the ruler. With the Hasmonean coins, we have a lot of text which is uh, describing the, the, the leader. Um, so we have, for example, on the coins of uh, John Hyrcanus I, um, a very long text which describes Yohanan HaKohen HaGadol Rosh Hever HaYehudim, which means uh, John... Uh, the high priest, um, and there are different ways of understanding the, the, the following words, but something like uh, the head of the council of the Judeans, probably that's what it means. So this is a lot of text on a very small coin, and, and it's uh, encircled with a, um, with a wreath. So it almost makes you feel like it'd be a lot easier to put his portrait there. It, exactly. <laughs> but, it's, but to my mind, what we have here is a... I, I call this a textural portrait, which is meant to replace an actual portrait. To my mind, this, this really stands out as saying you know, we're avoiding putting on a face. We're, we're simply putting on, you know, we're, we're, we're going to all these this effort, as you say, 
to, to, to not put on a face. So the earliest coin of this sort that we have is John Hyrcanus I's coins. And actually, we, the earliest of his coins we can date very well to 132 or 131 BCE. Um, and and those, are the earliest, those are the earliest Hasmonean coins that we have. And those are without figural art. Once we go back, the coins that we have from earlier periods, so the next coins going backwards in time, are from the... Uh, the early third century before the common era. The, so this is the Talmaic era. Uh, we have Judean coins, coins minted in Judea with the word Judea on it, Yehuda. And these coins have figural art on them. They have uh, the Talmaic eagle. They have the Talmaic uh, uh, king uh, and queen sometimes. And as we go backwards in time, Every single coin minted by Judeans from the late, excuse me, from the early third century BCE and backwards and earlier, every single Judean coin has figural art on it. So just like from the from 132 BCE and onwards and forwards, none of the Judean coins have figural art on them. When we look at the earlier coins, all of them have figural art on them. So that's that that's a really strong indication to my mind that we have a, something going on here, something from the Hasmonean period and onwards. Uh, it, it, it's very clear that there's a, an avoidance of figural art. So that's, that's, you know, that's one example. Yeah. Excellent. And in some cases uh, there's not quite the archeological evidence. Uh, you rely a little bit more on texts, for example, in the uh, discussion of circumcision, what evidence could we possibly uh, expect to find um, um, archaeologically uh, for that. So uh, in some cases you rely on texts, and, uh, but either way it, it works and it continues to support a thesis of the second century BCE being a pretty significant period. Yeah, so, so uh, that, you, you, met, you mentioned archaeology and texts. So, so as you say, um, you know, both archaeology and texts are evidence for what people are doing. These are different kinds of evidence and they need to be analyzed uh, obviously differently, but in the book, I look at both. I look at both, uh, you know, material remains, which can be coins that I dis just discussed, or, or you know, physical remains uh, of, of uh, I spoke about mosaic floors, funerary art, and so on and so forth. Um, animal bones, if we're speaking about dietary laws, uh, you know, these rep these reflect what people are actually doing. These these remains, these are physical archaeological remains reflect what, what the masses are doing. Uh, and what's great about archaeology is that when we find these, these, these remains dispersed throughout the country in large numbers, we can be confident that they reflect what the masses are doing. Uh, the problem with texts is that, you know, if you have a text that tells, that tells a story or something, or something of that sort, the text is being, you know, the text is written by one person um, and it, it, it's um, the, the information that the text represents has been filtered through the brain and writing of, of that individual. We, as historians, we need to learn to read between the lines to understand how much this actually reflects reality and how much it reflects um, in terms of what we're, we're talking about, how much this reflects what the masses are actually doing. Just to give an example, right, when Josephus uh, talks about uh, Judeans avoiding figural art. Jo Josephus had a reason why he wrote that, 
right? So it could very well be that this was actually what people were doing, but it could also be that Josephus had a reason why he wanted to represent the Judeans as avoiding figural art. So with, with, with texts, we need to be uh, extraordinarily careful uh, that what we think they are reflecting is actually what they are reflecting. With archaeological remains, it's somewhat easier because, again, if we have these remains distributed randomly throughout the country in large numbers, we can be much more confident that that, that they represent uh, the thing. So with texts, if we find writer after writer saying the same thing, then we can be you know more confident that, that, that we have a reflection of what people are generally doing. Indeed. And uh, we on the New Testament side are very familiar with uh, filtering Josephus out and trying to uh, understand what his biases were and what we can rely on in sound history. Right. Um, Josephus is not special in this way. Any human writer is, you know, has their biases. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I introduced you at the beginning of the episode, I welcomed you back to the New Books Network. Uh, The reason for that being that you were interviewed earlier in the year within the uh, Jewish Studies wing of the uh, New Books Network. And so for the biblical studies people listening, I fully recommend that you, you know, on your podcast uh, uh, app or whatever it may be, search back for the uh, previous episode with Yanatan, uh, where he uh, talks with Ari Barbalot in a more uh, chapter by chapter way, perhaps, uh, of, of going through the book. But I wanted to move a little bit beyond that initial conversation that you had with Ari. Uh, I think I recognize from a biblical studies side of things that uh, if your social history of Judaism only Uh, coming into fruition meaningfully at the uh, period of the Maccabean revolt and afterwards is correct, then a lot of the ways that we um, as scholars talk about the Bible and Israelite history will probably need to change a little bit or uh, need to be uh, couched in certain ways. Uh, For one, you say that, and this is well accepted by uh, uh, biblical scholars, that the dates that we assign to texts should not be correlated in any way with their acceptance as authoritative or binding on the Judean masses. There's a good parallel there between my, uh, uh, the work that I do in canon studies but uh, we'll save that for a whole nother episode, perhaps. Given that you work primarily in archaeology, though, uh, how do you see the relationship between archaeologists and biblical scholars? What do we get right or wrong when we speak of biblical archaeology, as it were, or archaeology at all? And how can we better incorporate archaeology, including the kind of findings that you have in your book, when we interpret texts that talk about Israel's history? Okay, there, there's a lot to that question. Um, so... Okay, so the question is, what is of interest to us? I once had a conversation with a colleague of mine, uh, and I said, you know, all of us are interested in, essentially what we're interested in is people. We're interested in people in the past. And she disagreed with me. She said, no, I'm not interested in people. I'm interested in texts. And I was taken aback because, what do you mean? You're, You're interested in texts as these these artifacts that stand alone, that would be like saying that I'm interested in pottery. I'm not interested in pottery. I'm interested in what the pottery represents in there's terms so much of, of it, though, when you, when you undertake a dig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of it. But, but in the end of the day, it's not the pottery that interests us. It's what the pottery and the rest of the, the, the physical remains have to tell us about the human past. So, so to my mind, that... My focus, I, I can't say what our focus should be, but I can say that that I think that our focus tends to be on uh, on the human past, on what people are, are doing and thinking. So um, archaeology is incredibly valuable 
if we're interested in seeing what people were actually doing, right? It's a little bit hard to, to figure out what people are thinking, right? What their beliefs are. And that's why in this book, I don't look at beliefs, right? I, I speak about Judaism, but my focus is on practices. So I don't look at questions of, you know, beliefs about uh, an afterlife or belief about, uh, you know, a, an end of days or, 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 or angels or, or, or any of this, this, this sort of things, um, because it's very hard to, to, to understand uh, from certainly from physical remains, but even from written remains, it's hard to get into the minds of a very large group of people, right? I can try to get into the mind of an individual writer, okay? So, you know, the, the author of the Gospel of, 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 of Mark, right? I can try to get into his mind. Uh, people have certainly tried. That's <laughs> also not the easiest thing, but it's an individual. To try to use a text like Gospel of Mark to try to understand what the Judeans were thinking, uh, you're not going to get very far. Or if you do, then it's, you know, it's, it's in your imagination. Um, so, so when we're talking about what people are actually doing, archaeology is an incredible tool. Uh, and perhaps it hasn't been used enough by biblical scholars because they tend to be less interested in what people are actually doing and they tend to be more interested in text. Uh, what I would caution against is what, what I said before, confusing the two and thinking that by looking at, you know, the texts, I can, I can you know, easily understand what, pe what people are doing and, and just assume that people are doing whatever it says in the texts. So, so I think that we need to be thinking a lot about what our evidence actually is able to teach us about, right? What we can derive from the various kinds of evidence that we're looking at. I don't know sure. if I answered and your question, but <laughs> no, it's it's great food for thought. Uh, what my, what my answer have been before you you know gave away the game and said the people was the right answer. <laughs> you know what ancient people were doing. I think we we uh, as biblical scholars grasp onto text because that's the you know a tangible thing that we have uh, from antiquity. Um, uh, but if uh, we you know, committed more thought to it, we would say we'd be interested in the history of ideas and what was actually happening at the time and what, you know, led to a text like this being preserved and celebrated and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, the uh, um, you know, you know, the joke about the drunk and the keys. There? <laughs> Tell okay. it, please. Okay. The, uh, a policeman comes late at night, a policeman comes, uh, was walking down the street and he sees a drunkard uh, underneath a light post looking, looking around. He says, excuse me, sir, what are you looking for? And the drunkard says, uh, I'm looking for my keys. So the policeman said, did you lose your keys here under the light post? The drunkard said, no, I lost them over there in the park. So the policeman says, so why are you looking for them here? He said, because here's the light post. There's, there's much more light here. There I can't see anything. So, so the, the point is, yeah. So we think, okay, well, this is the evidence that we have. Let's look here under the light post. Um, fair enough. But if the keys are lost in the park, then you're not going to find them under the light post. So it's it's incredibly it's we cannot be lazy and say, you know, this is what we have. Therefore, this is what we're going to be studying and, and, and just assume that it reflects, you know, what the masses are doing. We, we cannot do that. That, 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 that that's wrong. Fair enough. Um, okay, uh, so your book has, only, has been out for about nine months, which isn't a long time, all, all things told. Uh, I've seen it discussed in a variety of venues like the Smithsonian Magazine, BAR, 
Israeli newspapers like Haaretz and Times of Israel. My sense, though, is that it's hard for um, a, a new book like this to get noticed when books are coming out left and right from publisher after publisher. Um, so just anecdotally, from my own Hebrew Bible professor, I mentioned to him, you know, have you seen this? And he, his answer was no. He was very surprised that a book like this came out. And so we've uh, dug into it uh, uh, simultaneously together. Um, what has the response been uh, uh, like to your book from the range of audiences that you perhaps hope that it would impact? Um, have Hebrew Bible or Old Testament scholars pushed back on it or what have your fellow archaeologists had to say about it? Um, and I ask this question because you have said in previous interviews that the time is ripe for the conversation to be opened up about the origins of Judaism. And so I would imagine that for uh, some, your work is provocative or controversial, even if for you it's kind of a level-headed consideration of the evidence that you see before you sifted out from, you know, archaeology. Yeah. So actually, uh, the, I began the conversation even before I published the book, uh, because I am breaking new ground in a way here. Uh, and I knew that this, there, there, this would be controversial. It was very important to me uh, to make sure that I had all my T's crossed and my I's dotted uh, before uh, the book was published. And I was very open with my colleagues about, you know, my, my, my thoughts, my ideas, the, the, the evidence that I was pursuing. And I shared this with lots of, lots of colleagues along the way. Um, and in order to, to look for pushback, right? I wanted pushback. I continue to want pushback. And, um, and tr the truth be told, uh, the, the kind of push, if I did have pushback, um, it was either because they didn't understand what I was getting at. They thought that I was, you know, I was, I was looking at intellectual history when, and I was making the claim that the Torah didn't come about until the second century. And I had to explain, no, I'm actually not looking at that. I'm looking at when did the people know about this Torah? When did it, when, you know, when did people start to put it into practice? And then once, once I make it clear exactly what it is that I'm doing, um, people are like, okay, that's that's interesting. That's that that that's an that's basically been my my experience, um, and it helped me to make sure that in writing the book, that I would write very clearly what it is doing, what I am doing, and what I am not doing. So I, I you know I I work very hard to make you know ultra clear what it is that I'm looking at, what it is that I'm not looking at. Overall, I would say that that, that the response has been positive. Um, like you say, it's relatively new book. It's only been out around nine months. So we don't have any, um, reviews in the places we would expect to find the reviews just yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately our field is lags in the time between when people write stuff and when it actually gets published. So, you know, I, I assume that in the coming months, uh, reviews will start uh, rolling out. I'm a bit surprised that there isn't one in, you know, the journal of biblical literature or something like that. Yeah, uh, I don't know how long the, the lag is. Yeah. So I think it just depends on how quickly you attract someone's attention or, or ire, perhaps. <laughs> um, but you won't hear hard critiques like that from me, uh, coming as I do from the world of New Testament and early Christian studies. I think I have perhaps less skin in the game than uh, people who uh, are beholden to uh, the Old Testament as, you know, sacred scripture. Um, but I fully see, for example, the pressure of the you know Hellenistic and Roman periods reflected in this early Christian story that we have uh, sectarianism, factionalism, apocalypticism, all is typified by the Qumran Yahad. 
Um, um, and all this has relevance to how we interpret first century Christian origins. Um, however, as you uh, probably know, uh, to, uh, uh, there are people who entirely spiritualize the Jesus story uh, and want early Christianity to be sort of beyond the politics of, of the time in which it was born. So uh, thinking along the lines of the importance of the Maccabean Revolt and Israel's brief history of uh, Hasmonean uh, self-rule and the revolutionary upheaval that would ensue in the first century in the Great Revolt and the Jewish-Roman Wars that followed. Uh, do you think we underemphasize the importance of what we, what we might call recent political history and studies of uh, the Christian Gospels and the historical Jesus? And so this is me trying to, uh, I guess, tug your uh, book in the direction of early Christian studies, if you have anything to say about that. Well, you know, for sure. I mean, listen, half of my, half of my book uh, in each chapter, half of the book is dedicated to showing that we have Judaism in the first century of the common era, that we have this, um, you know, wide scale uh, practice of, of the laws of the Torah in the first century. So I would say, first of all, for those interested in, in historical Jesus, in, in, in New Testament studies, um, if you're interested in, you know, looking for for a place where, where we have a collection of evidence of Judean practice of the Torah, um, you know, this is what I do in half of the book, as I say, each chapter, the first half is, is dedicated to showing that uh, Judeans, you know, on a, on a wide scale basis are keeping the laws of the Torah. Um, so, so this, in terms of, of, of you know, pe people of this, who have this kind of interest, uh, certainly, I think uh, it's important to be paying attention to the place of the Torah in the lives of, of Judeans. Um, you know, if we're, there's lots of interest in, in Paul uh, these days. Uh, you know, what, when Paul is talking about the law and so on and so forth. You know, this is what we're talking about. The law, that's the Torah. And, you know, what, what is, whatever it is that Paul is after, um, you know, he, he was in the end of the day one person. One, one Judean, um, but he's embedded in a larger Judean society, which has been keeping the laws of the Torah for, what are we talking about, uh, about 200 years. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it, I think it does give an important context for, um, you know, the, the, the people that we meet when we're walking down the street of the New Testament um, you know, these are people whose ancestors had been keeping the laws of the Torah for the last 200 years. So that, 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 that gives, I, I think, an important context. You, you, would, you would be able to know better than me how important that is for New Testament studies. But, but, I, but I think that that is important. Well, sure. Well, and, and they wouldn't know that it's only been 200 years. They assume that it goes back to a very much longer tradition, you know, back to the, you know, united and divided kingdoms uh, of Israel. And that's and, right. Uh, in, in their myth, in their mythical mind. Right. Um, they, they would have imagined that this went back uh, much further. Um, but in terms of understanding the dynamics of the first century, uh, you know, knowing that this is something which is relatively recent, uh, perhaps can have some ramifications. I don't, I don't delve into this in the book, um, but you know, I, I hope that this could be a uh, a, a, um, a jumping board for you know further thought and, and discussions about what the ramifications might be for 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 understanding, let's say, Judaism in the first century. Sure thing.
Um, and, and so, uh, once again, I recognize that you are, are sticking to the social history and not talking about the intellectual history, but I wonder if there is any kind of follow-up to this book that is necessitated that might delve into uh, um, how that intellectual history is preserved and how it finally is enshrined. To give one example, uh, right? So, um, the Hebrew Bible is full of appeals to much older tradition, Abraham and Moses, foundational myths of the 12 tribes and the exodus from Egypt and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, pulling from one thread that may have no obvious place in governing traditions like the prophetic history, how might you explain the survival of the prophetic lineage to become a key part of this late arriving Judaism, as you would term it, perhaps? Um, and to take very specific examples, some of the very old prophets like Hosea or Amos, um, should we imagine something like small pockets of scholars who are preserving these texts for a long period of time and then eventually becomes affiliated with this sort of Torah preserving or Torah spreading institution? Right. So that, the, you know, that's the million dollar question. Who, who was it that was passing on these traditions? Who was it that was passing on these texts once they, they come to be written down? Um, were these texts and traditions uh, being passed around amongst... So first of all, we know that they were being passed down. How do we know? Because we have them today, right? Had they not been passed down, like all, you know, texts that were written in the past, after a certain amount of time, the, the, the material on the, which they're written falls apart, gets eaten by, by bacteria, and we no longer have it. The only reason that we have the biblical texts today is because they were passed down over the generations. That does not necessarily mean that in the beginning they were being passed down by everyone, right? All you needed was one person who finds a text that might be, you know, 50 years old and sees that the edges are starting to turn yellow and says, you know what, this is an important text. I'm going to copy it onto a new uh, onto a new scroll. And then 50 years later, 100 years later, the next scribe says, you know what, this is an important text. I'm going to copy this. Um, that is the very, very minimalist uh, way of imagining how these, these uh, texts were passed down in the beginning. Uh, a, a slightly more expansive view would see would be to imagine, and again, I'm using the word imagine very carefully because we don't have evidence, but one could imagine a small group of people um, that were interested in these texts, or at least interested enough that they talked about them somehow and copied them down. Um, or we can imagine a larger group of people for whom this was interested. We don't know. We don't know how many people were interested in, in, in you know, a text of Hosea's prophecies. We don't know how many people were interested in uh, you know, a text of Jeremiah's prophecies. We, we simply don't know. What I would stress is that we should not assume that any of these texts were well known uh, beyond a very small circle of, of, of scribes. We must not assume that any of these texts were particularly important. And, you know, here I've, I've had some pushback when I say this. Biblical scholars assume, I don't know why, but they assume that these texts were well-known and, and were cherished already from when they were first uh, put into writing. The reasons that they've given me is that, well, 
They've come down to us today, haven't they? They're so important to us, you know, today. They became the Bible. So they must have been important right from the beginning, which to my mind is ludicrous. I mean, that is that is not an historical uh, argument. That is ridiculous, right? It's very easy to imagine that a text was written down by a person who thought that this text was super important and was passed down by a scribe who decided that it was important enough to, to write it. That doesn't mean that the society at large uh, thought that this text was important. Eventually, the society at large did come to regard these texts as important. That we know. But until we know that that happened, we cannot just assume that these texts were, were important to, to any large group of people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Uh, let's talk about a different set of texts that you discuss as evidence in your book. So uh, I was not surprised to see that this set of documents from Elephantina um, uh, was leaned upon in a few different places throughout your book. Um, it's kind of an underplayed set of documents in biblical studies, but uh, I uh, took interest in them before. So that's why I'm asking you about them. Uh, um, can you uh, talk briefly about what the recoveries from Elephantina um uh, entailed, and, and we're talking about an island on the uh, Nile River in southern or upper Egypt. Uh, when are these texts dated? What data do they contain about the religious practices and beliefs of people at this garrison or outpost? And what evidence do they provide, if any, for a solidified or splintered or simply non-existent Judaism in this Persian period? Okay, so this actually speaks directly to what we were just talking about now. <clears throat> uh, the Elephantine, as you as you described uh, precisely, the Elephantine documents are both papyri and ostraca, uh, you know, um, texts written, short texts written on broken pieces of pottery, which have survived from a Judean colony, which was living on this island in, in the middle of the Nile in the fifth century before the Common Era. Now, the reason why these documents have survived is because Egypt is a, is a desert. And so we can have papyri that, that survive uh, in, in this arid environment. The reason why these are so important is because we have this, uh, this you know, we, we were lucky enough that these texts survived and the texts represent a, a, a community of ordinary people, right? So these are not the intellectuals who are the, 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 the writers of the biblical texts. And if we're interested in, in, in a in a, an example of ordinary people, the Elephantine documents give us an example of ordinary Judeans at this time. We would love to have texts like the Elephantine texts from a place like Jerusalem or from some, you know, town near Jerusalem or from any place where there, any other place where there were Judeans. Unfortunately, in Jerusalem, it rains. And because of that, we don't have the arid environment where such texts could have survived. There's no doubt that these texts were, you know, texts like this were being written. We just don't know what, what was written on these texts. So again, what's, what's so great about the Elephantine uh, documents is that they give us a snapshot of a community of ordinary people that were living their ordinary lives in the fifth century before the common era. So um, so, 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 you know, this is the, around the time of a putative Nehemiah, a putative uh, Ezra. What were they up to, these Judeans who were living in the fifth century in Egypt? Well, they, it doesn't look like they have anything that looks like the Pentateuch. 
they don't see they don't refer to anything like the Pentateuch. They don't refer to any figures like Moses or any of the other figures that we find in the Pentateuch, or in fact anywhere any of the other Hebrew Bible literature. We don't have reference to any of the Hebrew Bible literature in this in in these documents. And let, they don't, let alone texts from you know from the yeah, let from alone the, the texts themselves. Exactly, right, we yeah. don't have any biblical texts uh, amongst these documents, nor do we have references to these biblical texts. And when we look at the, what they're doing, what they're actually doing on the ground, they have a temple uh, to the Judean God, whom they call Yahu. And this, of course, uh, in you know, this is not in keeping with what we find in Deuteronomy, where uh, the the the, uh, the place where uh, the Judean God is to be worshipped is in Cisjordan, you know, presumably Jerusalem. So this is not okay according to Deuteronomy, but and yet they have a temple to to Yahoo in in Elephantine, and in this temple we have it seems that they are worshiping prim, uh, uh, primarily the Judean God, but they seem to have reverence for other gods as well. So we have reference to to um, Eshem Bethel and to some of the, the Egyptian gods as well. Uh, Anatiyahu, which might be um, <clears throat> a female consort of of the Judean god, uh, we have re- we also have uh, Judeans taking oaths to these other gods. So they don't. Not only do they not seem to have a Torah, they also are doing stuff which goes against you know, what we find in the Torah. So this is a snapshot of a Judean community. Uh, what I do in the book is I look at Elephantina. I also look at uh, Babylonia. We have documents from Babylonia as well, uh, Yehudu and uh, Murashu archives uh, from around the same period of time, slightly earlier and into the fifth century as well. And, and there as well, we find very similar situation where we have, you know, taking oaths by, by, by these other gods, um, people naming their children, uh, names which include elements of, of foreign deities. Uh, so this is this is what's going on. This is what the masses are doing at this time, at least in Elephantine and uh, and in Babylonia. Now, should you think that something different is going on in Judea, when we look at the facts on the ground in Judea, we see we we have less evidence. So we don't have the the textual evidence that we have from Babylonia and from Elephantine. We do have coins, and on the coins we have uh, foreign gods. On the Judean coins, which are being minted in Judea, in Jerusalem, uh, with names of Judean uh, leaders, so the the Judean governors. We even have one coin. There's only one coin that survived, which has the name of the Judean high priest. So it's it's minted on the coin in in Hebrew, uh, Yochanan Hakohen. Yohanan the priest, and we have on this coin the face of Athena, the goddess of uh, the goddess Athena. So, you know, when we're looking at the facts on the ground in the fifth century before the Common Era, the evidence that we do have looks like Judeans are not keeping the laws of the Torah. Sure. So it's uh, at best evidence for a non-normative Judaism, if there is any Judaism there to be found at all. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I never, I never use this term normative Judaism okay. because you know if we're looking uh, from our perspective, let's say, uh, you know, we might say, well, this is normative because it, 
it's normative if it follows the laws of the Torah. It's not, but if we're talking about the fifth century, to say that something is normative versus not normative assumes that uh, you know there's there's what's right and what's wrong, and and that's just not that I, I, I don't see that as making sense when we're talking about a period of time when the masses aren't keeping the laws of the Torah. So I don't, I don't use the term normative. I use the term you know I I I I, I ask. Do people know about the laws of the Torah? Are they keeping the laws of the Torah? Is this something which is widespread? Sure. Okay, uh, thanks for that distinction. Um, let's get to that last chapter uh, where you do the historical reappraisal, as you, uh, as you phrase it. Uh, you rely on a few earlier scholars to sketch out a transformation of Torah from an ideal or a set of descriptive stories about uh, Mosaic times to a uh, what eventually becomes a real set of laws and lending Israel a distinct sense of its antiquity. Um, along the way, you suggest that the Hasmoneans may have adopted a Pentateuch to serve as a declaration of independence, as well as a constitution for its independent state. And you as sort of self-consciously borrow from these uh, parallels in American history. Um, you also admit that your conclusions are a bit of conjecture, uh, imaginative history, as it were. Um, can you describe more about this process for us and how it might have been a way for them to uh, uh, push away their Seleucid enemies and to coalesce the Judean people around I guess, common myths or stories of, uh, to, uh, of their charter or foundation, uh, foundational narratives? Sure. So let me just um, make it very clear. The first six chapters where I'm looking through the evidence, right, is, is you know, th- this is not speculative, right? So here I'm looking for evidence. And where I find evidence, I put it on the table. This is the evidence we have. Where I don't find evidence, I put it on the table and I say, we do not have evidence before the second century of the common era. Now, if I'm wrong about that, if there is evidence and I just don't know about it, or we don't know about it, we haven't found it yet, and tomorrow we find it, great. You know, then we will have new data and then we can discuss that. But the first six chapters, right, there's, that's not speculative. That is, that's the data, right? We have no evidence before the second century before the common era, by the way, when you spoke, when you asked me about uh, scholars' uh, reactions, I have yet to learn something new that I didn't know about. I wish I did, right? I wish I could learn something new that uh, about this that I don't know. No, nobody has give, brought me data to show. Actually, we have from the third century before the common era evidence that that Judeans are keeping the rules of the Torah. That hasn't happened yet. It might, and if it does. Great. We'll, we'll we'll have to rethink, but this is you know this is data driven. There is no evidence before the sec- second century before the common era. The last chapter is the speculative one because then the question is okay, what happened, right? Wh- ha- how is it that the Judeans came to keep the came to know about the laws of the Torah? How is it that they started to keep the laws of the Torah? What happened? And that is speculative because we don't have we don't have direct evidence, um, and here we can only speculate. We can imagine, and the, as you said, the, the 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 idea that I explore, which I I think is probably the most likely, is that when the evidence first begins to emerge, probably it's not by accident, and probably um, you know, it's not an accident that during the Hasmonean period, in the beginning of the Hasmonean period, we begin to find this evidence. And the idea that I explore uh, is that perhaps it was, as you said, perhaps it was the Hasmoneans themselves, the Hasmonean rulers, the Hasmonean leadership that uh, was behind this adoption of the Torah 
as the law of the land. Uh, now, I say we don't have direct evidence for this. What we do have evidence for is that Hasmonean rulers, beginning with John Hyrcanus I, so uh, you know, in the late second century before the Common Era, as they expanded the Hasmonean, uh, the Hasmonean um, realm, right, the, the land which they, they ruled, the Hasmonean rulers brought the Torah and enforced it on the new peoples that they were conquering. So, for example, John Hyrcanus I conquered Edomea to the south of Judea and forced the Edomeans to keep the laws of the Torah. Right? So we find Josephus and other writers, ancient writers, that, that talk about this. They say that, um, that, that Hyrcanus forced the Edomeans to circumcise themselves and to keep the laws of the Torah. We find that, that Hyrcanus's son, uh, Aristobulus I, did the same thing when he conquered the Eturians to the north of Judea. Right? He, he, he forced uh, circumcision and keeping the rules of the Torah on the Eturians. So this is something that apparently Hasmonean uh, leaders were doing, right? They were, they were bringing the laws of the Torah and enforcing it on the people that they were, that they were ruling over. The suggestion that I make in the book is that perhaps it's not too far of a jump to imagine that either they or their predecessors, their immediate predecessors, let's say you uh, could imagine Simon or, or Jonathan before him, uh, were doing the same thing for the Judeans themselves. So, so it was the Hasmonean leadership that made the decision that, that, that the Pentateuch will be the, the, the basis for a Torah law, which will be the law of the land for the Judeans. And I can imagine a, a reason why they might have done this was in order to unite the people under under the banner of the Torah as, as an ideological kind of um, you know a, a pole around which people could could um, could around which this the people could coalesce uh, under their leaderships something along those lines and you know I'm, I'm happy to 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 think about this more and to to but but I but I think that that it's it's a um, productive way to to, to think about uh, what might have happened. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it may be imaginative history, but I think it's also reasonable history. And at the same time, it uh, uh, should spring to the imagination of your readers who uh, are in some way connected to scholarly traditions to ask questions about uh, what this might mean. Was there any pushback to you know the institution of a brand new thing at this time? Why don't we see clearer scenes of this revolution in the texts themselves. Where is the synagogue in these texts when that seems to be the institution that helps spread the Torah? And for me, uh, in New Testament studies, we talk quite often about uh, pseudepigraphy and literary deceit and you know letters written in the name of people who, <laughs> you know, they weren't actually, um, uh, but so, you know, they're adopting a persona to write in that name. And, and should we uh, bring this conversation back to the Hebrew Bible text? I don't know if you want to respond to any of those imaginative questions that I have, but they're the type of things that came to my mind when I was reading. Yeah. So first of all, I'm I'm I'm, I'm absolutely um, very happy that these are the things which that this was the point, right? This was not meant to be the last word. Um, this was certainly meant to uh, the the idea here is okay. If once we once we look at the evidence and we see that the earliest evidence is the Hasmonean period, and if we can imagine this all beginning in the Hasmonean period, my hope is that this is going to be a springboard for you know for further discussion and thinking and. 
and rethinking a lot of the things that that that, that, that we've just assumed uh, in the past. One of the questions that you just brought up now in terms of what you know what was the reaction of the people, let's say in the middle of the second century before the Common Era, when the Hasmoneans, uh, let's assume that this is correct, right? This 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 uh, idea that it was the Hasmoneans that brought the Torah to the people. Um, what what were the people's reaction? It's a good question. Um, clearly, people were keeping the rules, right? People now, how quickly did this happen? We don't have, you know, the, the the evidence is not so so finely tuned to be able to say that it was immediate, right? To say that it happened within a year, within a few months, within ten years, within twenty years, within fifty years, the evidence simply isn't isn't that finely tuned. Hopefully, as we move forward, we will find more archaeological evidence that will help us to to to, to more finely tune this. But at, at, at this stage, we cannot really uh, say with any degree of certainty. You know, these are interesting questions. Um, one thing which, which I do discuss in the book is the sectarian split, which seems to have happened under the Hasmoneans. And the, the, the point that I, bring, that I bring in the book is that it's interesting that this sectarian split happens exactly at this time, right? So one of the what are the one of the important things that people were were disagreeing about, and which led to, to to the various sects splitting off, was this issue of interpreting Torah law exactly how the law should be interpreted. So we find, for example, in the the, the writings that have survived from Qumran, um, you know, evidence for various disagreements and and harsh disagreements in terms of understanding very detailed laws of the Torah, how the Torah should be interpreted. Um, you know, whether it's Sabbath laws or, or purity laws, we have, you know, very, very detailed uh, arguments about the minutiae of, of, of the laws, how they should be interpreted. Now, it's interesting that all of these arguments explode in the Hasmonean period. Why is that? Why is that that we never hear of anybody arguing about how the laws of the Torah should be kept any time before that? Well, if it's only in the Hasmonean period that people are actually keep, that the masses are actually keeping the laws, then it's not surprising that it's precisely at this time that we first begin to hear people uh, arguing about the laws. You have to remember the Pentateuch is is a very opaque text, and when we take an opaque text and we set it as the basis for a living law, a law that people are actually keeping, you can only expect that there are going to be arguments about understanding how to, how to put it into practice. So it, it, it should not be surprising to us that we have this explosion of, of arguments, debates about how to keep the laws of the Torah from the Hasmonean period and onwards. Prior to that, crickets. Indeed. I have a quote from uh, toward the end of the book where you talk about this emergence of sectarianism. You said, had the Pentateuch been widely accepted as the authoritative law of Judea in the 3rd, 4th, or 5th century BCE, we would hardly expect a lull of hundreds of years before Judeans began to actively contend with one another over the correct exegesis of the law's minutia. So uh, the, the sudden emergence of different factions that have different ways of interpreting Torah laws is a uh, is a point in perhaps your favor uh, toward the second century BCE being and, and the yeah absolutely and I, and I should add that it from then until today it's only <laughs> been you know it, it, people have only been arguing but it begins in the second century before the common era before that 
like I said, crickets. There is no, we don't hear of anybody arguing about, you know, what does it mean with, that you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath, right? Nobody's discussing that. When does the Sabbath begin? When does the Sabbath end? What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? What happens if there's a war? Right? There's, there's a, a great story in both Maccabees uh, about, you know, what do we do when we have to fight against, uh, against the Seleucids on the Sabbath? Are we allowed to break the Sabbath in order, for, in order to fight a, a, a war of self-defense? Right. And, 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 and some people actually died because of this, because they thought, no, no, we're not allowed to fight. And, and, um, Mattathias says, no, no, if we do that, then we're, we're all going to get killed. We need to fight. The question is, hold on a second. What happened before that? Before that, Judeans and Israelites weren't fighting wars on Sabbath. It, ne it, ne it never happened that a war came up on Sabbath. It was all, they always happened during the week, right? Of course not. Um, it, it never came up before because people didn't know about the, 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 the you know, the, the laws of the Torah. The, the Torah wasn't something that people were, knew about and were keeping. It makes sense that this only starts once, you know, in the Hasmonean period when people, when people are keeping the laws of the Torah. So, so none of this should be surprising if we, um, if we reconstruct the emergence of Judaism in the second century before the common era. Could you see scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls community, the Qumran uh, community, um, taking this sort of as their big bang? Uh, like, as you said, uh, we have evidence of schisms of some of some sort in the Dead, in the sectarian texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls, talking about a wicked priest, a teacher of righteousness, so on and so forth. Uh, might this have been the big bang for the uh, Qumran covenanters to go out into the desert? Well, the the the, the, the what that big when you speak of a big bang. The point is this ha this must have happened quite soon after Judaism emerged. In other words, we're talking about, you know, within years, decades at most, that after, you know, Judaism emerged, after the Judeans at large adopted the laws of the Torah as the law of the land, then we have this break, this schism. This It should be interpreted this way. It should be interpreted this way. We have some people going out into the desert, some people... Um, becoming Sadducees, some people becoming Pharisees, right? This is this the schism happens quite soon after, and 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 again, I don't think this is something surprising. If we think about Islam, for example, right, the split between Shia and Sunni happens very soon after the death of Muhammad, right? So this is something which it doesn't take long before you have this split uh, between between uh, different interpretations of a foundational idea. You know, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I have uh, one sort of final question for you, and it's where do we go from here um, as biblical scholars or maybe as archaeologists, however you want to answer it, you can. But for example, uh, in biblical scholarship, uh, it's commonly recognized that the book of Daniel uh, is written, uh, is tinkered with quite late, right, uh, in that uh, period of the uh, Maccabean revolt or shortly thereafter. Uh, should we be looking for uh, the signs of other very late re uh, revisions to Hebrew Bible texts and, you know, beyond these limited places where we already know that it seems to exist? And does your study have any implications for the, uh, you know, the emergence of the Septuagint and different um, uh, readings that we find there versus, you know, the surviving Hebrew texts? Uh, where do we go from here, basically, is my uh, final question for you. 
Okay, so again, we're, we're, we're talking about intellectual history versus versus yeah. social history. I can't get away and, from that, apparently. Sorry yeah, yeah. well, that. I mean, <laughs> these are these are important distinctions. Um, when we're talking, you, you mentioned uh, the Septuagint, for example. Um, so the Septuagint, first of all, I think we need to be very careful uh, when we talk about dating stuff, right? All too often, I you know, when I speak to biblical scholars, they'll throw out dates. Uh, and I ask them, how do you know that? And then they get all confused because, well, you know, um, the, the, the biblical scholars are, I, I find, uh, are often um, e- easy, easy to pull out dates without necessarily having what to back up those dates. So, so first of all, we need to be very, very careful when we speak about dates. And we must not be embarrassed to say we don't know. Right. I hear Joel Baden very often speaking about um, uh, with the Pentateuch, and he is very happy to say he doesn't know when the various uh, sources that, that he, he that he he reads into the Pentateuch uh, w- when they when they were written. And, and that that's what we need to be doing. We need to be careful and we need to be able to say we don't know. Um, let's imagine that the uh, Septuagint was translated in the third century before the Common Era. OK. It was, it, let's say that it was translated then. What was it translated? Who, for whom was it translated? Right? If the, if the Torah isn't well known amongst Judeans at large, then again, we're talking about intellectual history. We're talking about, you know, a small group of people that are passing around these texts the, of the Pentateuch, and some of them decide to translate them into Greek. Okay, what does that have to say about society at large? Not necessarily very much, right? So, so, so these are the things that I would be encouraging scholars to be thinking about. Um, you know, these are important texts to us today, and we cherish them. And, you know, that's, that's wonderful. But we cannot be blinded by, our, the, by the, the, the way that we cherish these texts into assuming that the ordinary Judeans at the time even knew of their existence. Uh, so, so you know, all of the texts that you mentioned, Daniel and so on and so forth, let's take a step back and let's remember that the fact that we have a text and if, if we can date it well to a certain period of time, that does not mean that anyone else at that period of time knew of the existence of that text. This is something which we we, 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 we really need to, 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 to flip a switch in our head and to remember, you know, what it is that we're talking about. We're talking about intellectual history. We're talking about a person that writes a text and perhaps people that are passing it on. But those people might might have been um, esoteric uh, fringes of the society rather than being the society itself. Yes, and, and we must assume that there must have been a process of dissemination and uh, texts as sites of conflict, especially as con- uh, contrasted against other texts. Eventually, before we finally get to something like canonization. Yeah, yeah. So eventually, eventually, we know that that it became you know well known and 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 spread out. But before we know that that happened, we 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 must not assume that that was the case. Um, I'm delighted that you took the time to uh, think with us through the uh, ramifications of your work for biblical studies. Um, and I'm just eager to see where scholars of Hebrew Bible and Old, or Old Testament take and apply your work. Um, 
I usually ask what a, what a scholar is working on next, um, whether that be a text or your work in archaeology. Is there anything that we should know about about your uh, forthcoming work? Okay, sure. So the the, the stuff that I, I usually work on um, uh, is the stuff from when we have Judaism and onwards. So uh, I'm putting out a book on the ancient tefillin, uh, the phylacteries from the Judean desert, uh, a comprehensive um uh, overview of, of what we, you know, a publication of the finds. So the text, the materials on which on which they're written and made, the sewing materials, you know, the, the everything. Um, and so that'll be coming out uh, in the coming years. It's it's takes time to couple together. Lots of people are working on this. I have paleographers and, and people working on the physical uh, uh, leather remains. Um, and right now, these, this, at this very moment, what I'm working on is, uh, actually directly relates to what we're talking about. And that is, um, what went into the Pentateuch? So in other words, when we have the Pentateuch, right, the the Pentateuchal uh, texts, how much of that was based on what people were doing in Judean Israelite society prior to that time, and how much of it is unrelated to, 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 to social norms. Um, so this is, you know, this is what goes into the Pentateuch. And eventually, the, once the Pentateuch is adopted, and that becomes Judaism, but this is going all the way, all the way back to see how much of what we find in the Pentateuch reflects uh, larger Judean slash Israelite practices and how much of it is is unrelated to, to actual practices. So this is, you know, all of this is tied in together because all of this, I'm looking at what people are actually doing. Um, and which I, as I, as I said, I think has been long neglected and hopefully um, people will, will begin to find interest in this. I think this is something which is extraordinarily interesting. I hope so too. Well, uh, you're not Nadler. Thank you for your time today, for your work on Jewish origins and for being our guest on the new books network. Thank you for having um, me, Rob. Absolutely. Again, Dr. Adler's book is the origins of Judaism and archeological historical reappraisal. And it's available now from Yale university press, wherever quality books are sold. Uh, I've been Rob Heaton, your host in new Testament and early Christian studies. And I suppose now also Hebrew Bible uh, and the social history of uh, the Judean people. Uh, but uh, for the new books and biblical studies uh, side, I'll be with you again on your next download, but in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thanks. Bye-bye.